Take your copy of God's Word with me this morning. Uh, Open it again to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This will not conclude our series in Mark, but uh, but today this will conclude our series in Mark, at least for what remains of 2023. Next uh, Sunday and through the month of December, uh, we'll work our way through the first part of John's Gospel as we prepare for uh, Christmas and uh, and, and celebrating and remembering uh, the Lord's birth and incarnation. Today, uh, we will be in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Mark 9, 2 through 13. Uh, The English poet and author, William Blake, offered the notion in one of his poems that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. The idea there is that our lives and character take on what is most captivating to our attention. Whatever soaks up most of our time, whatever arrests your senses uh, ends up shaping the rest of our lives. What we behold, and in beholding what we worship, then shapes our preferences, our loves, our affections, our actions, even our worldview, shaped by what we behold. This happens less obviously than we think. Once in our culture, there was a sincere fear that the advent of radio and radio entertainment would consume the public's attention. Then TV came along with pictures added to sound and color TV even sometime after that. And now we have color TV in HD and 4K and 8K and all the Ks. A generation of parents were at one time terrified, and maybe rightly so, that TV would rot the brains of their children. Little could they anticipate the advent of social media and its captivating and often destructive potential, especially for young minds and young eyes. We become what we behold. And so beholding rightly or beholding the right things then is of the utmost urgency for us. In Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, we read the account of Jesus' transfiguration before the disciples uh, about a week after Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ and Jesus' call to costly discipleship. And this, in this event recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels each, we find that Jesus is the divine Christ to whom the disciples must listen, especially when he speaks about suffering. He is the Christ that the disciples must behold if they are to become like him, following him. The, idea, the main idea of this text and of, our, uh, of the sermon this morning is this, that beholding Jesus on the mountain helps us to obey Jesus in the valley. Beholding Jesus on the mountain helps us to become what we need to in order to follow Him through difficult seasons of life, through valleys of life. We need this morning to understand that following Jesus is is not all mountaintop experiences, nor does Christ abandon us in the dark valleys of discipleship. Seeing Jesus for exactly who He is, beholding Him, inspires our worship. It arrests our attention and makes us able to be obedient to Him in every situation. I would invite you to stand with me as you're comfortably able uh, as we honor God by reading His Word, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Mark, the gospel writer, continues in this biography of Jesus. He says, After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up, on a, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written, that, written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Beholding Jesus on the mountain helps us to obey him, to follow him well in the valley. There are two injunctions, two calls to action from our passage this morning, from this uh, retelling, recounting of the transfiguration. The first is this, look at Jesus. The second is equally clear, listen to Jesus. But first, look at Jesus, behold Jesus. As we come to this account of Christ's transfiguration, his transformation and appearance before the disciples, we are called to behold Christ's glory to gaze on His beauty, His majesty, His divinity. Six days after Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus takes three of His disciples. We sometimes call them the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up to a high mountain. This is probably Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi, the area where they were just six days before, but Mark doesn't tell us precisely which mountain it was. But he takes them up a high mountain, and there he is, as our English texts say, transfigured, literally metamorphized. He was changed in his appearance. His appearance is everything that we mean when we say glory or glorious. That is what Jesus becomes. The only way Mark describes it is that, or the the only physical description he gives is that Jesus' clothing began to shine and it radiated with glorious light, appearing whiter than snow, brighter than the sun. It recalls what the psalmist says of God in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. For just this moment, these three disciples see with their own eyes the unveiled glory of the Christ the unveiled glory of the Son of God, as He likely appeared prior to His incarnation. When Jesus said in Mark 9, verse 1, that some of His disciples would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom of God coming in power, He may have meant His resurrection power and the spread of the gospel, uh, but He may have also meant this moment. The Son of Man is prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, now standing in all of His glory before these men. Why does God do this for the disciples? Why does he give them this arresting vision of Jesus? Why does he unveil all of the Son's divine glory for them to behold here on this mountain at this point in their life with him? Why this? Why now? Now, There are many theories that we could come up with, but I think the plainest explanation has everything to do with timing. Peter has just confessed Jesus that, that Jesus is the Christ. Then He rebuked Jesus for saying that he would have to suffer as the Messiah. Then Jesus tells the disciples uh, to live with such denial of self-determination and self-will that they be ready even to die for him as they follow him. 
This call to discipleship is a truly difficult one, as we saw last week. And in His kindness and in His grace, God gives the disciples a glimpse at the unveiled glory of Jesus so that they can have a full and fuller understanding of who it is that they are following, who it is that has called them to a life of self-denial. This Christ is not just some special man. He's not just the Son of God in some metaphorical way. He's not just another great prophet, but He's the eternal God of the universe, the uncreated Creator, the one who delivered the Hebrews from slavery, who met with Moses on the mountain, who devoured Elijah's sacrifice and caught Elijah up in fire. This is the God who called through the prophets for His people to be holy, who drove them into exile and then brought them home again. The disciples must understand that the one calling them to die to self, take up their cross, follow Him, is none other than God Himself. Friend, do you behold Jesus this way? Do you understand that this is what the Bible says so clearly about Him? How does that shape your worship, beholding Jesus like that? How does it adorn and amplify His death and resurrection? Before we ever seek to follow Jesus, to trust Him, to live for Him, We need first to behold Him, to look at Him, to gaze on Him, to take Him all in, His matchless power, His infinite glory, wrapped in human frailty and humility. This is the mystery that is Jesus. He's fully God and fully human, one person of the divine Trinity who made His home among humanity to deliver them. Just soak that in a moment. As best you can, behold His glory. Stare at Jesus a second in all of His divine majesty. Then don't just behold His glory, also behold His authority. As you look at Jesus, we don't just look at His glory, we also look at His authority, His his power, His, His divine prerogative and right. No sooner does Jesus appear in resplendent glory before the disciples than two others appear with Him. Mark tells us it's Elijah with Moses. Matthew and Luke would say it was Moses with Elijah. It doesn't really matter. It's the same people in either case. And they are, as Mark says, talking with Jesus, which is probably how the disciples knew that it was Moses and Elijah. Now, I have no idea what they're talking about. None of the gospel writers tell us what their conversation was. I'd love to be a fly on the wall of, uh, of them. Just what in the world would Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talk about? But I'm sure it was interesting. The significance of these two men, Moses and Elijah... These two leaders of the people of Israel in their historic past appearing here with Jesus is is multifaceted. There's there's much significance to uh, to this moment. These two, Elijah and Moses, are the deathless ones of the Old Testament. Elijah was taken up by God in a chariot of fire, we read in 2 Kings chapter 2, without dying. Moses, when he died alone before God in the Uh, wilderness of Sinai was buried by God's own hand without anyone seeing or knowing where he was buried. And so their appearance, Moses with Elijah, makes, makes sense more than maybe any other figure from Israel's past. Some have argued, and I think there's something to it, that Moses as the deliverer of God's law to Israel is a representation of the law. And Elijah, as a great and powerful prophet in in the power of God, represents all of the prophets so that when they appear, they attest that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In Matthew's and Luke's Gospels, they mention Moses first, as we said, as a way of highlighting his presence and helping us to understand that something like the Exodus is happening again. 
Uh, one commentator has helped me to see some of the significant parallels between Moses and the Exodus and what is going on with Jesus here on the mountain. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, Jesus takes three disciples up to the mountain. In Exodus 24, Moses goes with three, uh, three other people plus 70 of the elders up a mountain. In Mark uh, 9, verses 2 and 3, here in our passage, Jesus is transfigured and his clothes become radiantly white. In Exodus 34, verse 29, Moses' skin shines when he descends from the mountain after talking with God. Here in our passage today, there's a voice, the voice of God speaking from a cloud on the mountain. In Exodus 24, 16, there's a voice speaking from a cloud on the mountain. In Mark 9, verse 15, a, a verse following our passage today, we see that the people uh, that, that see Jesus when they come down from the mountain are astonished when they see him. In Exodus 34, verse 30, the people of Israel were afraid to come near to Moses after he descended from the mountain. These parallels, the parallel of, of what's happening with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and what happened with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai uh, during the, the, uh, following the Exodus, all points to the truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophecy from Moses' own mouth. He's the fulfillment of a prophecy of a prophet like Moses who would come later. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses is giving his final instruction to the people of Israel before he dies, or before he dies and before they go into the land of Canaan. And in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And in short order, here in our passage today, there is a voice from the cloud, just as there was a voice uh, from heaven in Mark chapter 1, verse 11 at Jesus' baptism, a voice that identifies Jesus as God's Son and a direct command to listen to Him. Moses said, a prophet like me will come up from among you. Listen to Him. G uh, God says from the cloud, this is my Son. Listen to Him. Amen. All of this directs us to the authority of Jesus. Yeah. If He is God in human flesh, and He is, then yes, He is glorious. But also, if He is God the same God that all of His glory implies, then He has all authority. He's not just the one that the law points to. He's the divine lawgiver. He's not only the one who was prophesied about, but He's the very God who gave the prophets words to speak. This Jesus has all authority. This is what it means when we say that He is King, that He is Lord, that He is Master, that He is Christ, that He is God. He has all power to do all things and every right to command your life. Amen. Beholding Christ's glory and authority does two things for us, I think. First, it gives us a full understanding of who it is that's calling us to discipleship, to deny self, to embrace suffering, and to follow Him. Yeah. It's not some capricious. It's not some mischievous being who has people, human beings, for his playthings. That's not the God who's calling us. It's not, this, it's not some grotesque monster full of violence and gore who's forcing our will for his own pleasure, but it is the all-powerful, all-glorious, awe-inspiring, and all-surpassingly beautiful Christ, Amen. beholding Christ's glory and with it his authority, taking it all in, also reminds us of who holds us as we follow Him. This is the sovereign, all-powerful, loving God who holds all things together by the word of His power. It may not be easy to give the reins of our lives to God, to deny self, take up our cross, follow Him. 
It's not easy to do that, given our, especially our propensity to want to have life on our terms. But knowing Christ, knowing that Christ has all authority as God Himself, and knowing that He holds our every circumstance in His sovereign hands, well, that, friends, makes, him give, makes giving Him the reins a lot more understandable, a lot more doable, because we know that we can trust Him with it. The transfiguration of Jesus calls us to behold Him, to behold His glory, to behold His authority, to take it all in and recognize it for what it is. But this transfiguration moment also calls us to listen to Jesus. We need to look at Jesus. We need to listen to Jesus. We need to listen to the Son of God and not to the impulses of emotion. When Peter sees Jesus in His transfigured state, he says, Lord, it's good we're here. This is a good day. Let's build some tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We can, we can hang out here as long as you want to, Jesus. Now, Mark helps us to understand what's driving Peter to say this, which is not some grand idea. To sit the, like Peter is, is literally stupefied. Uh, Mark says that the disciples were terribly afraid. They were terrified and didn't know what else to say. Even like in a moment, we're just of surprise and you're just overwhelmed and words come out of your mouth that as soon as they're coming out, you're wishing you could reel them back in. I think that might be Peter in this moment. It's like, I don't even know what to say, so let's build some tents. Raw emotion, which is I think what we see in Peter, raw emotion will lead us to do and to say lots of silly things, lots of ridiculous things, sometimes foolish things, brash things, even heretical things. Peter, listening to the impulse of his, motion, of his emotion in this critical moment, blurts out a sort of knuckle-headed reply. Friends, how often do we do the same? Yeah. Uh, we, we hate, I, I hate, when conversations get silent and start looking for words to fill those quiet spaces, even if those words don't mean anything, even though we don't mean anything by those words. In worship and in prayer, how often do we listen to the fickle and passing emotions of our hearts and pray for things that make no sense, or no godly sense anyway, or just fill our worship with meaningless words and actions because we feel good, or we feel scared, or we feel desperate, or worse, we're trying to gin up some sort of emotion in us. Don't listen to the impulses of your emotion. Be not a slave to the impulses of emotion. Not that emotions in and of themselves are wrong or sinful, but acting on them first is often silly or foolish. Instead, listen to the Son of God. We see Jesus' authority displayed in this moment, but then it is this, it is His divinely, uh, His authority is divinely affirmed by the voice of the Father from this cloud on the mountain. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The command of the disciples upon seeing Jesus in all of His glory is that they are to listen to Him. Not just to hear what He says, but to internalize His words, to understand Him with the intent to obey. We who have children have all had that conversation with Him about not just hearing what I'm saying, but listen to what I'm saying. Christian, is this your first response after beholding Jesus? To listen to Him? For the disciples, the command was clear and obvious. What Jesus says, they must pay attention to. And the command applies to us as well. What Christ has said in His Word, we are to listen to and seek to obey. 
As the disciples follow Christ, as they watch Him suffer, they see Him rise from the dead, they preach the gospel, they lead the church of Jesus Christ and ultimately die for their faith, Christ's words will be necessary for them to do all of this. Necessary to give them understanding in chaotic moments. Necessary for helping them to endure. His words will be necessary for vindicating Jesus' own resurrection as they proclaim the gospel and give reasonable defense for His Resurrection from the dead. His words will be necessary for the lost to hear. will be necessary for the church to grow upon. You've seen my son in unveiled glory, the Father says. Now having seen who he is, listen up. Interestingly, Christ's first command then is to tell the three, Peter, James, and John, not to say anything about what they had seen. At least until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. Again, this is a stern charge to keep quiet about Jesus' identity and what they have seen as, uh, and knowing Him as the Christ because His death and resurrection are yet necessary for God's plan. And spreading the word of Jesus being the Christ and, and this uh, uh, fantastic divine vision that they have seen atop this mountain may lead people to respond to Jesus the wrong way. Like Peter, they Many were wanting a political king, and, and many may have rushed to make him a political king prior to or, or, or to try to, to, to press him away from God's necessary plan of Christ's death and resurrection. And the disciples do a good thing. They listen to Jesus. They obey the voice of the Father. They obey Jesus when he tells them not to say anything, and they keep quiet, which I can imagine was quite a feat for Peter, who often just seems to say stuff. But this moment doesn't clarify everything for the disciples. They need also to listen to the Word of God. We need to listen to Jesus, not to emotion. We need to listen to the Son of God. We need also to listen to the Word of God. Listening to Christ is, first of all, it's a function of our obedience to Him. If He is Lord, we listen. If He's in charge, we obey. But listening to Christ is also critical for being able to listen to the Word of God in all of the Scriptures. Jesus is the one who draws the many themes and threads of Scripture together to fulfill all their promises and interpret their meaning. He illustrates this before the disciples right there in this moment as they're walking down the mountain. The disciples ask about all that the scribes had said about the coming of the Messiah, that, that Elijah was supposed to come first, right, Jesus, to restore everything before the Messiah comes. Why is it that the scribes are saying this? The disciples are drawing on a teaching from the scribes, from the Pharisees, something based on uh, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets uh, in, our, uh, in our Christian Bibles. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 uh, speaks of Elijah's return to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and vice versa. Perhaps all of this is in the minds of the scribes and, and even in the minds of the disciples. They just saw Jesus talking with none other than Elijah. So Malachi 4 is coming back. The, wait, wait, Jesus, Elijah's supposed to come first. We know you're the Christ. He, he came a little bit later. We saw it. Like, what's going on here? Is this what the scribes meant? And if Elijah restores everything, Jesus, what about this talk of you suffering and dying? If, if things are restored before the Christ comes, how is it that the Christ, that the Messiah can die? And Jesus then helps them to do what they're supposed to do, not just to listen to him, but to listen to all of God's word, 
And not just the scribes too. Jesus explains that the scribes were not wrong. Malachi did write that in Malachi 4, that Elijah would return and it would come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to their fathers. But he also reminds them of the rest of Scripture too. That is Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 both say, and as the prophet Zechariah affirms, the divine son, the divine servant, the divine shepherd would be made to suffer. So it's not wrong to remember Malachi here, disciples, but remember all the rest of stuff too. More still, Jesus says that Elijah has come. Here he's referring to John the Baptist. Gospel writers Matthew and Luke make this inference much clearer. They explain that that's what Jesus was talking about. John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah to call the people to repentance. And the world did to Elijah what it wanted with him. John fulfilled the ministry of his prophetic forebear. He proclaimed the word of God, and the people did not listen. John was killed for his troubles. Jesus is saying to his disciples, remember all that the scriptures say, boys, not just the parts that fit your preferences. Remember Psalm 22, remember Isaiah 53, remember Zechariah and the promise that the divine son, the divine servant, the divine king would suffer. This event in the life of Jesus, his transfiguration, his transformation atop the mountain becomes a cornerstone then of Peter's witness to Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter says this to the church. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This event becomes for Peter a, a, a cornerstone of his witness to Christ. He's telling the church who, who, who may have been tempted to think, perhaps on the influence of outsiders, that this event, this moment of Jesus' transfiguration, or even just this idea that Jesus was the Christ, this is just some sort of myth. It's some sort of legend that was made up after the fact about Jesus. These are stories added to a person's actual life in order to make him out to be more than he was. Peter says, no way. The gospel we preached to you, these are not cleverly devised myths. We saw with our eyes him transformed in all divine glory before us. This becomes a hallmark uh, piece of, of, uh, of vindicating and verifying the truth of who Jesus was this moment. And Peter makes that clear in his letter. Amen. But this mountaintop experience is not the cornerstone of the gospel altogether. It's not even a cornerstone necessarily of the disciples' lives and ministry. Listen, it's good and right and holy for us to behold Christ, to look at Him in all of His glory. But friends, we don't need daily displays of the supernatural in order to behold Him. We don't need mountaintop experiences like Peter, James, and John had with Jesus in all of His divine glory, unveiled before. We don't need all of that to behold Him every day. Friends, we have the Word of God that stands as a witness to His glory. These, this library of God's words through divinely inspired human authors pointing us to all who Jesus is. For those who believe, we have not only the Word of God, but we have the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts that testifies to Christ's grandeur. Often we desire similar religious experiences that the disciples had to what the disciples had here in Mark 9. 
seasons of high spiritual emotion and an overwhelming sense of the presence and glory of God, we go chasing after this as though that's the norm of our Christian life. Sometimes God gives them. Sometimes God does give us, does impress upon us these moments of, of an overwhelming sense of his presence and of his glory. Friends, I've had them, not seeing Jesus with my own eyes like the disciples did, but I think you know what I mean. But never does God intend for us to pitch a tent and stay there. A life following Jesus is not found in spiritual highs punctuated with the occasional valley. Rather, it's found in walking through the valley with the vision from the mountaintop that keeps us moving forward. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, he said, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you, he says this to his disciples, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus doesn't call us to a lifetime of mountaintop experiences overwhelmed with his glory. He calls us to a faithful walk following him through valleys. The disciples would get maybe a couple more experiences like this in their lives when they saw the risen Christ, when the Holy Spirit came in power at Pentecost. But the rest of their lives were lived in the paths that transverse the valleys of every Christian's life, often through suffering. So what shall we do in those valleys? Having beheld Christ in all of His glory, how do we trudge faithfully on through hardship? We listen to him. We take up his word and we recall what he has said and promised. We hide his word in our hearts as his own word encourages us to. We survey both testaments, old and new, to see Christ in and through all of it. We receive all of scripture as that which is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training in godliness, as Paul writes to Timothy. And we obey it by faith. As we listen to Christ, we remind ourselves when we are tempted to despair for long seasons in the valleys of life that Christ, when he faced the cross, did himself not despair. So we press on. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, that we are to look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The joy set before Christ at the cross was the joy of obedience to God. The joy of knowing his death for sins would achieve the redemption of sinners. His joy was in knowing that his death and resurrection would lead to your new life in him, to your forgiveness of sins, Christ saw the joy. He, he took as joy your justification to God when you would trust in Him. If you'll hear the call to follow Jesus, to turn from your sin and self-determination and seek life from Him, you have all of the joy that He Himself had looking to the cross, beholding Christ on the mountaintop, looking at Him and listening to Him gives us all that we need to obey Him in the valleys, and in every other position and season of life. So my exhortation to you this morning is to look to Him. Yeah. Behold Him in all of His glory and in His authority. And listen to Him. Lift to Him your cares. Walk on in faith in the sovereign Son of God who holds you in His hands. In order to behold Christ well and be able to listen to Him, 
What are the things that we might need to set aside that have captured our attention that are not Christ? What are the things that we are beholding and in beholding, becoming, that are not our Lord? Might you need to set aside the amount of time you spend on social media? Maybe cut it off altogether. TV news. Maybe mindless games or apps on your phone. Perhaps you need to quit beholding a coveted job or position within your own company. Maybe you need to set aside or repent from envying another person whose, whose life you, you admire and would like yours to look like. You may need to repent of beholding another God who is not the Lord and another system of religion that is not following Christ. Perhaps you need to quit beholding Buddha, Allah, Shiva, or Vishnu. Perhaps you need to quit beholding the works-based gospel of the Latter-day Saints. Perhaps you need to quit beholding or worshiping the universe as some sort of God itself. We become what we behold because we listen to and obey what captures our attention. In this moment of the transfiguration, the disciples' attention is absolutely arrested in every way by the glory of Christ and transformed by beholding Him in His glory and His authority so that they are able to obey Him by listening to Him every season of life. Behold Christ this morning, friends. As we see Him in all of His glory in the transfiguration, our response to this is to do the same, to behold Christ, to revel in His glory, to listen to Him, repent of our sin, believe on Him, and then let Him conform us to His image. We behold what we become. Beholding Christ helps us to become like Him, that we might endure with faith through every season of life. Following Jesus is not just all, it's not all mountaintops, but beholding His glory in mountaintop sort of degree is meant to drive us and fuel us and help us press on in obedience through dark valleys. Amen. Friend, if you don't know Jesus the Christ, if you've not beheld His glory as Savior and Lord of your life today, I invite you, I'd do that today. Yeah. Give your life over to Him, this majestic God who adds humanity to His divinity to give His sinless life as a sacrifice for you dying for your sins and being raised from the dead with power over sin and death and the grave forever. And he who, who, who promises to give you life full and abundant and free if you'll turn from sin and trust in him. Here in a few moments uh, after I've uh, prayed for us, we'll have a song of response we'll sing together. And I'll be here uh, at the front and, and if you need to respond in obedience to, to any part of God's word this morning, I invite you to come and do that. If you need to give your life to Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior, King and Master of your life, if you've beheld His glory and now you want to obey Him unto salvation, come talk with me this morning and let's, uh, let's talk together about how you can have assurance of your right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Let's pray together and then respond to God's Word in singing.